When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Hello. I'm back. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is great to be back, ladies and gentlemen. Refreshed, restored, reconstructed, reborn. Uh, We're going to need an awful lot of energy this week, I have to tell you, uh, because the fight is going to start right here. Julie Hartley Brewer just said, we are going to bring you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth here at Talk Radio, because nobody else seems to be doing it. The planned month-long lockdown will cripple business. It will cause unknown misery and destroy the hopes of millions of people already concerned for their futures. It will also further delay much needed medical treatment cancer screenings and doctor's appointments and for what exactly so that the worst fears of the doom and gloom merchants at sage are somehow not realized so that boris johnson and his cabinet can say they did everything they could to stop the nhs from being overwhelmed based on a bunch of bogus statistical models which have already been proven to be wrong the good people of this country have had enough and they're not going to take it anymore. This morning, Nigel Farage has launched plans to rename the Brexit party as Reform UK, and he will fight local elections on an anti-lockdown platform. I predict he will get massive support from the ordinary working men and women of this nation who have been abandoned by mainstream politics. Nigel joins us live from the USA, where he is currently watching the Trump campaign. 0344. 499-1000. Coming up later on, Peter Hitchens will be here with his take on the latest lockdown madness from the government, which Carl Hennigan, by the way, dismissed this morning on Julia's show as already driven by incorrect projections. And Professor Carl Sikora will highlight how a month-long lockdown will affect cancer screenings and treatments. And I can tell you, it ain't going to be pretty. 0344-499-1000. Many of you will be extremely angry about these new measures, and I want to hear from you, of course. As usual, you are the eyes and ears of the independent Republic of Mike Graham. And you need to tell your MP how you feel as well. We'll be talking to backbench Tory rebel Andrew Bridgen, who is one of many Tories who is not happy at all with what the government is planning to do on Thursday. Not that much has happened apart from that, really, since I was last on the air. Can I just say how happy I am to see the Labour Party finally eating itself over the suspension of former leader Jeremy Corbyn? Oh, and apparently Keir Starmer had an accident, ran over a cyclist. Hmm... We'll be taking into all of that coming up later on on the show. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here uh, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. I'm back, and it is Talk Radio. 
Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, without further ado, let us get straight to the matter at hand, because unfortunately for all of us, it would appear that the government have lost their bottle. The government have once again let everybody down. The government have done what they said they wouldn't do, which is to order a complete and utter lockdown of the entire country, despite the fact that in some parts of the country it's not necessary, despite the fact that in many parts of the country there isn't a problem, despite the fact that according to the Office of National Statistics, the numbers of people dying from COVID are only reaching less than 7% of the population who are actually dying. What does that tell you? It tells you that they are overly concerned about something which is not happening. They are overly concerned about something that might happen and they are overly concerned about something which they are predicting will happen if we don't do anything about it. Let's talk to Professor Carol Sakura, former head of the World Health Organization Cancer Programme, Dean of Medicine at the University of Buckingham, because, Carol, uh, a very good morning to you. Um, you said in a tweet just the other day, 50,000 people could be walking around uh, in this country with cancer without knowing they've got cancer because they can't get a screening for it. That's right, Mike. It's good to speak to you. I mean, I'm a little speechless at what's happening at the moment because mm. I can't see the data to evaluate it. I keep looking at the data and I can't see what's triggered this. I've, I've seen the mathematical models. There are four or five out there, some very doom laden, others a little less. And sure, Boris can't be responsible for millions of deaths if that's what he's worried about. And the only way to avoid them if the NHS gets flooded is to go into some sort of lockdown. Yeah. But data don't show that. And, you know, I don't understand it. Uh, people say the data is being manipulated. I don't believe that. These guys aren't sophisticated enough to manipulate a railway ticket rather than, a, uh, than data about deaths and hospital admissions. If you look at hospital admissions in the last 24 hours, 440, uh, sorry, 1,400 people admitted to hospital. And that's just... And how many people in hospital? 10,000 people total with COVID. Mm. And some of those will be with COVID, but they would be there anyway. They've tested positive, and that's why they're counting. So 10,000 people in hospital with COVID. There are 170,000 beds. So that's less than 6% of NHS bed use is going to COVID. We're not overrun at the moment. Now, if we did get, you have to do something beforehand. But the data don't look like that. And that's why I'm so puzzled about the timing of this. It just doesn't seem sensible. And as you've just said, it's not just health versus wealth and the economy. It's health versus health. In other words, spend it on COVID and you lose your cancer patients, your stroke patients and those with heart attacks. And that's the problem. Well, that is the problem. Carl Hennigan was on with Julie Hartley Brewer this morning, uh, Professor, and I was really interested to hear what he had to say because he was uh, he was like you. He wasn't saying that the data is being manipulated, but what he was saying is that the data uh, is being kind of drawn towards an argument that's already being made, if you like. So what they're saying is let's use the data uh, to back up what it is that we want to do. And I think there's definitely a sense in the country that that's what's going on. I think so. You know, in science and in medicine, what we do with data analysis you write a paper and you start off thinking, what do I want to show? Let's write the conclusion. And then you look at all the numbers you've got and you make the, the, the error to try and fit the numbers to the conclusion you've already written instead of doing it the other way around, being open-ended. And I think that's what's happening here. Uh, the, the PR guys, the, the very clever special advisors in number 10 and elsewhere in government have been told, this is the conclusion we've got to come to get the data to look as though it's a logical conclusion. Hmm. The data I see, it makes no logical 
conclusion whatsoever. And, you know, the, the downside is just awful. The downside, it does no good because at the end of it, you come out, you're just where you were. And everything just returns to where you were within a week. Right. Because yeah. what, we have, what, we, what we have seen is Rishi Sunak this morning saying that they want to come out uh, in December from this lockdown in a sort of tiered system. So whatever happens, it's not necessarily going to be the end of the lockdown for some people anyway. It, yeah, some people that live in high areas, even after lockdown, may find themselves still restricted. Uh, the idea we're waiting for a vaccine, you know, we haven't got a proper vaccine for flu. I mean, I have I've had my flu jab earlier last week. And I know it's not that effective. It's partially effective. It'll be the same with this. Remember, billions of dollars are at stake mm. all around the world on these vaccines. And people are going to make a huge profit out of it. Not just the pharma companies, but the delivery companies and so on. So no one's going to say it's of no value, but it's not the magic answer like in the film uh, I saw the other day, which is great, where they just put a droplet in the nose and the patients all got up and got better instantly. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's not how it's going to work. And uh, so waiting for that is going to be difficult. I uh, think so. And also, let's look, for example, at the way that the projections have already been proven to be wrong. Because, again, Cole Hennigan said this morning, uh, basically, these uh, projections were made around about three weeks ago. And already they, we were supposed to be getting a thousand admissions per day or a thousand deaths per day. Uh, and instead, we're getting 300. So they're it, off it, by a factor of three. And yesterday there were 162 deaths on the on the the uh, the, store, the scoreboard that the government maintains. So something's different. Carl, I've got a lot of respect for. He's a very well-known epidemiologist, works as a GP at weekends, and understands medicine. Mm. And it, it's people like that we need, not mathematical modellers telling yeah. government what to do. Well, I mean, I took the trouble at the weekend uh, preparing for today to look up what the death figures actually are in this country. The Office for National Statistics, uh, as of yesterday, had the most recent week, uh, which is week 42, ending the 16th of October, in which the number of deaths registered in England and Wales uh, was 10,534. OK, however, those attributed to COVID-19 numbered just 670. So we're yes. talking about 6.4 percent of all the deaths are from COVID, which seems to me to be a very small number comparing uh, uh, the, what's going on. It is, but they have, that's part of the trouble in all the data. There's a lag, uh, and there's a lag that's different from different, the four different countries of Britain, and there's also a lag in how they're centrally collected. So as far as I can read, it, it, it's been about 300 a day for the last four or five days, but yesterday it was down. But then we get weekend effects. The reporting's poorer at weekends because it's still bits of paper moving around within the hospital and then reporting to the, the, the central registry office uh, again. It's not electronic. And so it's, it's a very slow process. So you have to wait a week before you can analyse what's really happening. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, you know, no other country would have such a slow system, but that's just the way it goes with IT in healthcare at the moment. Well, the trouble is, is, is that, you know, all of the things that they said would work have not worked. And so uh, perhaps they've now reached this point where they're going, well, we'll have to lock down because it's the only thing that we know had any measure of success the last time. Because the track and trace app, it would turn out, uh, seems to have been set at the wrong risk level. I'm not quite sure how you managed to do that. But seemingly one of the reasons why it didn't work. And don't forget, this is the thing they said that was going to be a world beating, you know, game changer. 
um, was that he wasn't informing anybody that they had been uh, possibly in contact with somebody who was infected because they got the, 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 the measurements wrong. I think the, the other problem with this virus, which is peculiar, um, the big REACT study, which is looking at epidemiology of it in a wide population, 300,000 people from Imperial College, showed that about 72 percent uh, of people have no symptoms when they get infected. So they're not going to phone anybody. Mm. If you feel well, why would you phone someone? Why would you get a test done? These people were tested as part of a research program. That's how they were found. Um, and but it's not working. You're mm. right. The whole test and trace system is just not working. And, and tell us uh, a little bit more about your own cancer experiences, Professor, because obviously that's so, your, your area of expertise. I've got a tweet here from somebody who says that he's just had a very good experience and a very happy experience uh, with um, going in for a bowel cancer screen. He had an appointment with a GP within one hour of asking, followed by blood and other tests. Results were back quickly. Two hospital appointments at two hospitals, including last Sunday for camera and instant results and a GP follow up last week. So it's good to hear that there are still some successes out there, um, but you'll be able to tell me more what the broader picture is. Yeah, it is. I mean, the, the cancer, once you know you've got cancer, once you've got suspected cancer, we can fast track people. Mm. And that's really working well. And we've got COVID free departments now. So we test people before they come. We ask them to stay indoors for three days before they come. In some cases, 14 days, just not to uh, not to go around meeting other people to make sure they're really negative when they come in. But um, the difficulty is a lot of people wandering around out there with minimal symptoms that are too frightened to actually go to their doctor. Or they've gone to their doctor and they can't get the key investigation done. And that's the problem. It may be a chest X-ray, it may be a CT scan. Uh, the backlog is quite massive. And we've got to get rid of that backlog. It's the people walking around with cancer that we don't know about. They're the biggest risk at the moment. And it's the same for certain types of heart disease and for people that have strokes. And the advice is, if you have any symptoms at all that persist, especially for more than 10 days, 14 days, do something about it. The, yeah. the health service is open uh, and it's not uh, not overloaded at the moment in any way. No, that's also the anecdotal uh, information that I've been getting over the course of the last few days. But of course, it's very difficult, isn't it, to argue with somebody who's promising you something will happen if you don't do anything. It's a bit like you know somebody saying to me, you know, if you do not sort of, you know, lock your door, you're going to be burgled. Now, that's obviously a very simple explanation uh, and a very simple thing to do. Um, they don't know you're going to be burgled. You're just going to increase your chance of getting burgled if somebody happens to walk past your door and push it open. You know, but, you know, to tell everybody else that they have to sort of stay in their homes because they might be frightened if they come outside and something might happen to them, it seems to me to be way over the top. Uh, it, it is slightly crazy. I, there's no doubt. And perhaps the worst thing is that there is a, a relationship between health and wealth. And if you make poor people poorer, which lockdown is bound to do, the WHO say it, use it as a tool of last resort because you'll just make poor people poorer when it happens. And uh, you're going to adversely affect their health. It's sort of inevitable. Their health will go uh, down because of it. They right. won't be able to eat properly. They won't be able to do things that make them healthy. And they'll scrip around for food for themselves and their children. Yeah. And it, it, it's a tragedy that's, that's about to unfold. It really is. I mean, hopefully, though, the schools remain open, so at least there's something there. But, I mean, is there any point, would be my next question, in locking everybody else down if you're still sending the kids to school? It doesn't seem a very serious lockdown. A mm. serious lockdown, which is done in some... I've got a granddaughter who lives in Peru, 
and uh, uh, she's lovely. She's 13, and lockdown there is serious mm. business. If you, you're out more than one hour a day, the, the, even now, even though the, the incidence has dropped, the police come and take you back, and yeah. you get fired. Yeah. And it, we do that sort of thing here. We're not a military police state. And, uh, you know, keeping schools open means there's cars on the road, parents have got to meet at the school gates. It's inevitable. And, you know, that's what we've got to do. We've got to keep the schools open. Mm. The idea that uh, we're going to close the schools would be crazy. And the universities, we've just got to get our normal life back yeah. somehow. And I mean, just in order to try and find some way, shape or form to forgive the government for what they're doing. I mean, do you have any understanding of how hard it is for them to kind of reach some kind of happy medium? Because obviously we would like to see them being a little bit more understanding about those who suffer during the lockdown. Um, but it is a tough call for them. It's a very tough call. And uh, when you look at you've got the economic side and the health side. You know, health versus health is an easy call to me. I mean, I can't see what the problem is. Mm. Life years lost from cancer are going to be so much bigger than life years lost from COVID because of the average age of death from COVID. So yeah. it, it seems a no-brainer to, to go for cancer, to prioritise it. Health versus wealth is a more difficult call. And uh, that's where you've got the competition amongst the different ministers and so on. And then, of course, the politics. Politicians want to be voted in. They want to be loved, believe it or not. Um, nobody loves politicians. That's the nature of the job. I <laughs> even and, less uh, so now. Even I less mean, now. But the trouble is, Boris Johnson was elected on a massive majority. He was a very popular prime minister. He got Brexit done. He did all the things he said he would do. Uh, and then this happened. And he's now pretty much lost the dressing room. I think he's lost the plot a bit. I yeah. think the whole lot of them have lost the plot. They need to get clear data. They can justify their actions. And at the moment, what I see is very messy data, which is not tidy, even the way it's presented on the, uh, the key performance indicators every 24 hours at four o'clock. And uh, they need to smarten that up to, up to let mm. us understand why they want to do this massive intervention on our lives yes and finally professor a lot of people uh, including robert on twitter this morning asking about the flu figures and the flu numbers because they seem to have dropped way down uh, off the scale of where they would normally be which seems odd doesn't it i think you're right it's an important point i haven't made when you look at hospital admissions this is winter coming what happens in October to November, you suddenly change something and you get lots of people coming into hospital. We call it winter pressures in the NHS. That's, it was when I was a first year medical student on the wards, it was the, the, the pandemic of uh, 1969, 1970. And it was, it was just normally expected. No, it made, there was nothing on the news about it. Just a lot of older people came into hospital with chest infection. Mm. This happened. So it's not surprising that the, the, the difference between normal winter pressure viruses and COVID uh, merge with each other. And as long as the NHS is not overwhelmed by things and doesn't seem to be getting overwhelmed, we should just go easy on lockdown. Absolutely. Professor Carol Sikora, thank you so much for talking to us. As ever, former head of the WHO Cancer Programme, of course, Dean of Medicine at the University of Buckingham. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, as I was explaining earlier uh, when we were talking uh, to Professor Carol Sikora this morning, uh, basically there was an interesting statistic which I was able to dig up earlier on uh, in the weekend. The latest figures from the Office uh, for National Statistics, that is the government official website, which is where all 
figures for deaths are recorded. For the week ending 16th of October 2020, the number of deaths registered in England and Wales was 10,534. Now, this was 580 more deaths than in week 41, right? But in week 42, the number of deaths registered was 6.8% above the five-year average, uh, which meant it was 669 deaths higher than the same time the the previous year. Now, here's the interesting bit, though. Of the deaths registered in week 42, 670 mentioned novel coronavirus, COVID-19, accounting for 6.4% of all deaths in England and Wales. So I'm telling you that this is the facts. These are the facts. 6.4%. Now, you might say to me, well, that was on the 16th of October. It might have doubled since then. Well, even if it has doubled since then, it's still going to be around about 10% of the people who are dying are dying of COVID-19. So why are you shutting down practically the entire economy of the country on Thursday? That would be my question. Let's ask Peter Hitchens. Peter, very good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. As ever, you probably saw uh, those figures that I was just uh, quoting from, from the most recent week that the ONS has has collected them. I mean, it seems extraordinary to me uh, that one, the government's doing what they said they wouldn't do, uh, and they're using data which hasn't happened yet in order to justify it. Well, it seems I, I, I think uh, the been people who've been trying to get hold of the basis on which the figures which the government were using on Saturday were compiled and they haven't been able to get hold of them. So much of this stuff is guesswork uh, dressed up as science, so-called stochastic uh, or modeling. And people think that because it's presented to us in, in men with white coats or with uh, large qualifications, that it must be true. It's speculative. Uh, There's a fascinating piece of information now available uh, and something which everybody should read. Uh, I I, I connected to it a lot at the end of last week. Fraser Nelson, the editor of The Spectator, last week wrote on his blog an extraordinary article on what actually happened during March and April on the way in which, uh, although we were under the impression that the, the intensive care beds in hospitals were completely overwhelmed, this simply was not so. And also because we were under the impression that the or many people were under the impression that the shutdown on March the 23rd had led to the subsequent fall in COVID cases. Uh, this also wasn't true. It's now pretty much accepted. I remember arguing about this at the time that the period between infection and death, if death is, is the end of the infection, is approximately four weeks. It's simply not possible uh, that a lockdown which began on March the 23rd Uh, could have led to the peaking of COVID deaths in this country on April the 8th. Uh, So these incredibly important pieces of information, which which tell us what happened last time, seem to me to be very useful in judging what's going on now. The other thing, of course, is is what do the figures mean? Uh, The the most touted figure, which is constantly wheeled out by the BBC, the figure of supposed infections, is actually a figure of positive tests of doubtful accuracy, mainly conducted on people who are perfectly healthy. And doesn't really mean anything because the more tests you have, the more positives you'll get. The second figure of hospital admissions, I've been trying for weeks without success to get from government information services uh, such details as the people who are listed as COVID admissions in hospitals. How many of them came to hospital because they have COVID? And how many of them were actually tested and found to have COVID after they arrived? Mm. This simple fact is, is, is not obtainable. As to some, so it's, it's almost impossible to get accurate figures about the real occupation of intensive care, uh, of intensive care beds in real time. No, uh, that's quite it, right. Also, all, all these things are just are just constantly touted as if we were on the brink of a, of a, of a disaster whose existence is in some doubt. 
Well, indeed, not just in some doubt, but based, as Carl Hennigan said this morning to Julie Hartley Brewer, uh, on out-of-date modelling. He says that he's looked at the modelling that was announced on Saturday and he reckons it was done about three weeks ago and he said if it was accurate, we would be dealing with a 1,000 deaths a day uh, and we're not. We're dealing with around 300 deaths a day. Um, so the, their original plan is already wrong, if you like. Yes, you also have to bear in mind the following absolute facts. Every year in the National Health Service, beginning round about the start of September and going on particularly into December when it often becomes very serious, uh, we have large numbers of people going into hospital uh, with respiratory illnesses. This always happens. Uh, there is a, currently a strong, uh, a strong pressure on, uh, on, on, on medical staff, not so much a pressure, an obligation because it's become a notifiable disease. Uh, to record COVID, where it's present in, in people who are in hospital for this purpose. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the main thing they're suffering from. Mm. So again, we're back to the old dispute about whether people are in hospital with or for COVID. Yeah. Uh, and, and also, th there is, a, as people will have been noticing, a, a, curious, uh, a curious feature in, in current statistics, uh, which is that they, the numbers of people in hospital for pneumonia uh, and, uh, and and influenza seem to have dropped to below normal levels uh, while the COVID figures are surging. Could this be simply a matter, again, of classification rather than of, 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 of the disease itself being the main reason yes. for these things happening? I don't know, but I don't think the figures that we have or the information that we have can tell us for sure. And mm. I, uh, I, the, the, as I say, the government is, 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 is completely determined, it seems to me, to follow these policies of, 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 of radical closedown of the economy. And therefore, it, gra it grasps at whatever figures seems to, seems to suggest that this is justified policy. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's correct. And I think no. there should be much more scepticism about it than there is. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the fact that you and I and others are asking questions about it is entirely legitimate. And I find it bizarre uh, that some people think that by asking questions, you're somehow uh, rapidly mad and crazy because you don't believe in COVID-19. I've never said that. And I don't think you have either. We both, no, but we, I, we, I, we both, we both accept that it's a, a, a dangerous virus. But equally, I, I believe that we need to question the, the, the way that it's being dealt with. Yeah, can I tell you a couple of experiences I've had over the past couple of days? I mean, I, on uh, on Sunday, I said that, it, it, that the BBC and the government had created the pandemic, uh, which otherwise no one would have noticed by the constant horror statistics which they produce. And I was accused by huge numbers of people on social media of claiming that COVID didn't exist, yeah. which I had not said. And today I produced a large number of, of, of charts, uh, actually from the Daily Mail, which has been doing a fantastic job in recent weeks of, of, of giving good factual presentation of what's actually going on, one of which referred to the state of affairs in September. I was immediately accused uh, by the, the, the same sort of people of trying to mislead because I, I've only shown the, the figures up to September. They're clearly mm. marked September. There could be no intention to mislead if you show clearly what it is. Mm. I find uh, that in almost all my discussions with, with supporters of the, of the shutdown, that they assume that I'm stupid and malevolent. Well, I try to assume for the purposes of argument that they're intelligent and have as good intentions as I do. And I, this is the, the really bad thing about this, the totalitarian nature of this, a lot of the rage directed against people who opposed this from the start has not been, oh, we disagree with you, but you should shut up. You should be yeah. silent. 
possible. We hate you. Yeah. You're not just wrong, you're bad. Yeah. And I get really tired of this, and I'm really pleased that this seems now to have arrived at a point where there is actually something resembling an opposition in this country. Mm. The Lockdown Zealots website, the growing number of members of Parliament who aren't prepared to take it sitting down, the growing portions of the media who are actually treating this critically. Yes. And I think that, that has really changed now. But I do think the people on the other side really do owe, if they wish to live in a free democracy, they really do owe it to their, their opponents to treat them with a bit more respect than they do. Yes, and I'm pleased also to see that the NHS um, is now being put under the microscope in a way which it has never previously been. Because this kind of ridiculous notion that somehow we must save the NHS rather than the, the, the other way around, um, is incredible to me. You know, the, the, the NHS that we are told is the greatest uh, health service in the world somehow can't cope um, with winter flu. And every year there's a crisis of one kind or another. And every well, year we're told, you know, we've only got 24 hours to save the NHS every single many, year. In many years there are crises. Uh, and, and in fact, this is largely because the National Health Service is actually quite an efficiently run organisation. And in recent years... In well, no, I mean, there are lots of bits of it. I mean, we all know of bad experiences that people have had and that we've had with it. But a lot of it is is, is, is quite well run by hardworking and dedicated people. But one of the things that it decided to do some years ago, and I'm not sure that I agree with this decision, but it's a fact, is to reduce the number of beds greatly and run on quite tight margins, which means that every winter it's almost inevitable that the, the numbers of, of, of intensive care beds uh, will run short. Mm. Uh, because there aren't that many of them in the first place. Mind you, intensive care beds can be expanded at quite short notice if you've got the staff to do it. Uh, and if you examine the, the influenza uh, outbreaks of the past several years, you'll find many comparable ones to this, which simply weren't publicised. I think even Piers Morgan's Daily Mirror used to shout quite a lot some years ago about uh, about, uh, about heavy pressure mm. on intensive care beds in, in, in hospitals. But it, it wasn't ever seen as a pretext, let alone a reason, for closing down no. the which pays for the NHS in the first place, for goodness sake. Well, exactly right. I mean, the whole point of hospitals is that they treat sick people. You know, the way that this government's operating, you'd think that, you know, they'd rather you didn't get sick because that's a bit of an inconvenience, to be honest, you know, which seems to be the wrong way around. The other interesting thing that Carl Hennigan said this morning on The Breakfast Show was that hospital admission figures are about people being admitted to hospital, not necessarily being given a hospital bed. And he said that it's uh, quite often a very big difference between those two numbers. And also, that, and also, and also, what we don't see are the the, the 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 numbers for the people who are discharged from hospital. That is very true, and the discharge figures seem to have disappeared from sight. Mm. Uh, I think they they're dropping. So I, I was making some inquiries about this at the weekend. I think that they are dropping a bit, but they have been quite high. And so, the, the balanced against the admission figures, they have a different. Uh, a different impact. But it is very interesting that, that admissions don't mean people actually taking up beds. And I hadn't realised that. And I think once you hear that, it, it does make you look very differently mm. at figures at all. Yeah. Uh, I, I've just, I, my experience has been as soon as any statistic becomes important in political debate, it begins to be fiddled. I've seen this in crime figures. One sees it all the time in, in, in examinations and education figures, unemployment figures. And inflation figures, when those things yeah. are troubling governments, people start, you remember possibly years ago when we used to have a thing called the retail price index, which measured inflation. Mm. And it kept coming in with rather high results. So the government produced something called the consumer price index, which which, uh, which left out various things and made inflation look lower. Yeah. Inflation, of course, remained the same, uh, uh, the same size as it had been before, but the figures were different. It happens all the time. It's not a criminal offence. And I think one can expect it to happen. 
And I think the government's commitment to its policy of shutdown is, is, uh, is, 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 is in fact, uh, quite possibly causing it to, mm. uh, to reach for certain forms of statistics. The other thing is there are different statistics on, on various matters. So the statistics on, uh, on, on deaths and on hospital admissions and all, all kinds of things have more than one source. Well, that's the thing. There are many. There are many different figures, and you can take your pick. I think the last piece I read about this last week, when I was off, uh, there were three different studies, three different models, all of which gave different numbers and different outcomes. You know, all of which said that the numbers were going up, which which we have seen and which we can uh, expect. But I was thinking more broadly, Peter, about this: that that we have come to this point in government because of what has gone before. In that the the governments uh, of recent times, probably the last decade or so, have relied on data as if it's sort of the holy grail, right? They've gone out collecting data. Some of it can only be from polling. Some of it can just be from asking questions to people and asking them what they want and making policy on the hoof based upon what they think they can prove will work because they've got the data. It's like they've become obsessed with numbers. Well, I'm all in favour of data if people, if people look for it in a, in a properly impartial and balanced fashion. What worries me is the way in which people hunt down data which suits what they've decided to do anyway. Mm. Uh, and and here, here is the other thing, I think, which I think we ought to be, be, be worrying about here, is, is Parliament on Wednesday is faced with this choice of yet again of following the policy of shutdown. And there is still no proof that these shutdowns work. In fact, the, at the utmost, on their own terms, all they can do is postpone and delay the spread of disease. Uh, they can't actually they, they can't actually halt it. The idea that we can suppress a disease is a fantasy. And in the name of this, MPs are about to vote for a measure which will undoubtedly destroy the the, the small businesses and the jobs of large numbers of people. And I'm I'm calling for people to write to their members of parliament and say, look, when this when this really kicks in, when it begins to be felt which I suspect will be around about February, March of next year, there will be no such thing as a safe seat. And, and write to your MP politely, briefly, acidly, saying if you're going to vote on Wednesday night for the destruction of other people's jobs, why on earth do you think that your job should mm. be I don't yes. think there's anybody reasoning with these boobies. Most of them can't reason, but you can certainly they can certainly count. And if they understand that once this, once this, once this, once this all begins to feed into real unemployment, there will be no such thing in this country as a safe seat. I think it, it might conceivably concentrate their minds into putting up some sort of opposition opposition to this. When people talk about safe seats, I say, look at Scotland. Before I think, what was it, twenty fifteen? There, mm. there were there were dozens of totally safe Labour seats. Yeah. Where are they now? They've all gone completely. So this assumption people make that uh, that MPs are untouchable and that some MPs make is wrong. I beg people now, you write to write to your MP, email your MP. It's fantastically easy. Be brief. Don't try to persuade them. Just try to make it clear that if, if your job is at risk, theirs should yes. be. T- well, indeed. And for Andrew Bridgen was on earlier and I said to him, I put it to him, which one of our listeners had suggested, um, that would you be willing to promote a bill in the Houses of Parliament uh, which would make all public sector workers take a 20 percent pay cut aside from emergency workers because the police and the fire department and the nurses and the NHS workers, they're all exempt from it. But every other civil servant, every other public sector worker takes a 20 percent pay cut in order to feel the same pain that people in the private sector are going to feel if they're put on furlough. But yes, but twenty percent is not enough for people in in that class. If if someone's on a on a very very small wage and working all the hours God sends, a twenty percent pay cut is 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 a really huge hole in their income. Uh, a comfortable middle class professional person 
uh, a minister or a member of parliament, they can cope with a 20% pay cut without any great difficulty. It would really, if you were going to do it seriously, have to be much, much bigger than that. They're not going to vote for it, I'm afraid. No, I'm of course they're not. I mean, he did say he would support it, but so I'm going to keep banging that particular drum because I think the point is, is that people uh, have done the the things that they've been asked to do. By and large, most people, like yourself, uh, albeit reluctantly, perhaps at times, have adhered to what we've been asked to do, um, and suddenly now. Uh, they're blaming another group of people for why the lockdown has to happen. He was blaming young people, you know, people who refuse to to adhere to the to the uh, social distancing measures. All of that to me is nonsense. It's got nothing to do with the fact uh, that certain people are not adhering to the rules. It's had everything to do with the fact that the rules are not making any difference. Well, quite. And where is the evidence for this anyway? I, I, I see none. Uh, it's just all part of the, the tiny little circle. They're all like hamsters in a wheel, these people. They believe <laughs> one thing and everything, that, everything they see confirms it. So if the shutdown doesn't work, it's because people haven't, uh, have, haven't obeyed it sufficiently. Yeah. Uh, if the shutdown is followed by a reduction in, 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 in disease, then it must have been the shutdown that caused it. No other argument can enter into their tiny minds. Uh, so I've spent the, the past several months treating my opponents this as if they were intelligent. I, I'm beginning to think the moment uh, has come just to, to actually treat them as stupid because it, it is outrageous the way that they, they visit this damage. If they were just do, talking like this, who'd care if they mm. sat in the pub saying these stupid things? But the consequence of this stupidity is that huge numbers of people, now imagine if you've spent 20 years building up a business, you've mortgaged your house for it. Uh, you've worked enormously long hours, not taken holidays, and now, through no fault of your own, the government is turning around and destroying your mm. business. Someone came into your small shop or cafe with a sledgehammer and smashed it up, and they were the government. I, what, what, what kind of country is it where the government destroys enterprise and destroys jobs? Mm. People all get elected on the promise, oh, we're going to create millions of jobs, we're going to create a prosperous economy. Here they are, smashing up an economy already in trouble and wrecking businesses and, and destroying jobs. And they are dangerous. I mean, I just spoke to a 96-year-old <laughs> veteran who, for the first time since the Second World War ended, is unable to come to the Field of Remembrance in Westminster this Thursday because the government have told him it's too dangerous. This is a guy who then explained to me how he was blown over a hedge while he was driving a Jeep in northern France during the World War uh, because a bomb went off underneath his Jeep. And he was laughing about it. And he's being told that he shouldn't be allowed to come to London because it's too frightening. I know it is. It is pitiable, isn't it? That, yeah. that, that we we're reduced to this stage. Let us choose whether. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. We're frightened of this virus. Yes, I think that would be a sensible thing. But well, I mean, do you also have any hope that come December the 2nd, uh, which is now uh, the date by which Rishi Sunak says we will come out of this into some tiered system? The tiered system clearly didn't work. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing this, would we? Well, you would think so, wouldn't you? I, I don't have, uh, I've, after all, Michael Gove went on the television yesterday and pretty much confirmed what most of us had thought, which is that December the 2nd is a fanciful thing. And, mm. and we, once again, in the Hotel California, which you can never leave, uh, it, it would, and, and, and we're in, we've been moved out of, of, the, of the slightly more spacious suite into which we were moved into a, into a more cramped and, and miserable one. And that's all that will happen. But I, I will be surprised if on December the 2nd anything more happens than there'll be a tiny concession. Uh, perhaps they'll, they'll, I don't know, allow the churches to open at Christmas and, and, and permit the rule of six to be to be varied so that children can, uh, aren't counted or some such token concession so that the government doles out normal life to mm. us in ladlefuls. Uh, normal life which has denied us for months. Uh, is now in their possession. Mm. What sort of country is it where the government decides whether you can live normally? Yeah, but also, have, but also, I've spoken to people who run businesses who don't know whether they can order Christmas, um, you know, sort of stock or not because they don't know whether it's going to be able to be sold. No, and this is a particular catastrophe. This is the, this is usually the golden quarter for 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 people running shops yeah. and indeed a lot of hospitality businesses as well. This is the time when they they make which makes the difference between profit and loss. And the government has chosen this time uh, to savage their opportunities of, 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 of making their books balanced, let alone making any money. It's it's unbelievable. These people, they are not. I, I've called them incompetent because it's quick. But the fact is what, what they realize is people lacking competence. I mean, if you or I were, were, were ushered into the cockpit of a Boeing passenger jet uh, and shown the controls, we'd look blankly at them. Mm. I, I would. I wouldn't know which one to press. I, I don't have the competence to do it. And these people with their degrees in philosophy, politics and economics and their years and years and years of backstairs crawling in political parties, which is all the skill they have, have no idea uh, how to understand the data that's put before them. And apparently no understanding at all of how economies work. No, I quite liked your uh, uh, allegory about them in, in, in a train, running a train sort of headlong yeah. down into a sort of downhill it, it spiral. Was, it came out of an old... An old um, an old poem from the, which Lord Beaverbrook used to be very fond of, called "Who's in Charge of the Clattering Train?" Mm. And, you know, the, the, the there they are, these two children who've uh, who've climbed into the into the cab of an old-fashioned steam locomotive and fiddled with the levers, and suddenly find that it's moving, uh, and they can't stop. The whistle is shrieking, the safety valves are, are blocked, uh, the train is is gathering in pace uh, and is bucketing along behind. All the passengers in the carriages are wondering what on earth is going on and unable to stop it. They can't even get these people to hear them. And if they could, they wouldn't know what to do. I'm afraid the, the last line of the poem, who's in charge of the clattering train, is death is in charge of the clattering train. Mm. Because 
the poem was about a real event where a train ran out of control and crashed into another one. I, these people are completely unfit for the job they're doing, and they're, they're, they're driving us uh, to disaster, partly, I think, again, because they, they know they've made a mistake, but they can't stop. No. Well, that's a, that's a terrible way to end, but we have to end, unfortunately. Peter, thank you very much indeed. Peter Hitchens, Mail on Sunday columnist. Uh, who is in charge of the clattering train, and can anybody stop it? This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, I'm delighted to say we're about to now go live to Pennsylvania with Nigel Farage, thanks to Betfair, our US election coverage partner. And we're not just going to talk about Donald Trump uh, and the presidential campaign that's going on uh, that Nigel is witnessing as we speak. We're also going to talk about uh, the new party uh, that Nigel wants to start, the Reform UK party, not content with forming the Brexit party uh, and changing the political landscape of this country forever. Uh, He's going to do it again. Nigel, a very good uh, morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, I was expecting just to talk to you about the uh, uh, the amazing uh, scenes that we're watching from the Donald Trump sort of campaign rallies and the numbers of people that are joining uh, and, and the surge of support that the president is seemingly riding a crest of a wave on right now. But let's just start with this uh, Reform UK uh, idea. It's a piece you've written in The Telegraph this morning, along with Richard Tice. Um, we're about to go into another lockdown. Tell us what you think. Well, I mean, the Brexit Party was founded because the whole political system in the UK, Mike, had failed. Failed to deliver on its promises. They told us if we voted Brexit, we get it. We didn't. We formed the party and we did transform the landscape. We got rid of Mrs May, which is the best feather in my cap, I can tell you. Mm. Um, and, it led, and it led to it led to Boris becoming prime minister and us leaving the European Union. Now, there is still work to be done. We haven't seen the final shape of the deal. But one of the slogans, Mike, we campaigned on was change politics for good. And that doesn't mean just Brexit. Brexit gives us self-governance. Once we've got that self-governance, we then need to exercise it properly. What we've seen in this pandemic, I think, is a total failure of leadership at almost every level. Um, I mean, £12 billion spent on a track and trace scheme. Companies like Serco being awarded these vast government contracts with seemingly no due process, um, and a Westminster Parliament that is going to vote through another catastrophic lockdown. You know, I'm here in America. Vote for Joe Biden and vote for a long, dark winter and vote for lockdown. Or you can vote for Donald Trump, who says we have to get on and live the rest of our lives. In the USA, there is a very clear choice. In the United Kingdom, All of our parties support lockdown in varying degrees. Uh, And I just think, if you look firstly at the economics of this, if your public sector is great, but if you're a Whitehall civil servant, it's marvellous. You can sit at home drinking beer. You you know, you're going to keep your job. You're going to get your pension. What about the millions of people out there running their own businesses? This second lockdown is the death knell economically for many of those people. And when it comes to health, the argument that we have to protect the NHS and stop it from being overwhelmed. Well, last time round, we finished up with 35,000 empty hospital beds. Lung cancer diagnoses are down 75%. I'm getting local groups in Kent who run diabetes trusts saying not a single person has been scanned since March of this year. So goodness knows what that means longer term. And actually more people are going to die 
of having diagnoses through this crisis than will die of COVID. So I think at every level, we need to think differently. We need to look at what Sweden's done and let's have a debate about how we can shield and protect those that need to be shielded and protected and how the rest of us can get on with our lives. Otherwise, not only are we going to see a terrible death toll from things other than COVID, not only are we going to see 4 million unemployed, but we're going to see a national debt that our grandchildren will still be paying off in 50 years' time. So we've rebranded the Brexit Party as Reform UK, and what we're about is making sure we get a proper Brexit, and if, and if there are things where Boris drops the ball, we'll go on campaigning, arguing that we really do need to look at the Great Barrington Declaration where scientists all over the world suggested an alternative approach to the lockdown. And then let's talk about the failures within our system, a bloated House of Lords full of the mates of Prime Ministers, an electoral system that is clearly hopelessly out of date. Uh, things like illegal immigration across the channel where we hear tough words and get no action whatsoever. So a genuine radical campaigning party. That's what Reform UK intends to be. And all of the things that you've mentioned there, Nigel, are all of the things that the seemingly mainstream political parties have forgotten about, as if they have forgotten about the working men and women of this country. The Conservative Party for a long time, which has been one of my bugbears, has penalised small business owners, taxed mm. them up the wazoo, absolutely wrapped them in red tape, made it incredibly difficult uh, for people to run businesses in this country. And now they're basically, um, you know, complicit in shutting them down. Yes, I mean, the referendum was a remarkable moment where the little people spoke. Yeah. The ordinary folk spoke. Um, and we thought that was going to herald remarkable change. It hasn't. Nothing has changed. The Westminster political class, along with their friends in the mainstream media, are still running things the same way. Uh, and yeah, someone's got to speak for ordinary people. That's what we intend to do. Yeah, absolutely right. Because I said um, at the beginning of this show, funnily enough, that, 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 that the abandonment of, of the ordinary people of this country is quite staggering because we still see, and you'll, you'll be seeing it over there, the polling that gets done now by these polling companies, YouGov, claiming that 70% of people in this country would like to see a lockdown. 40% of them want to see the lockdown being made even more difficult. I said to Andrew Bridget this morning, uh, who seems to have uh, swallowed the Kool-Aid after a visit to Downing Street, that basically um, uh, he should take a 20% pay cut and he should actually propose a bill in Parliament for all civil servants to take a 20% pay cut so they can feel the same pain that ordinary private individuals are feeling. Yeah, well, don't uh, hold your breath on that one, Mike, <laughs> because, uh, you know, uh, the great thing all through the history of mankind is that the ruling classes look after themselves, and if the rest starve, well, that's just okay. It's not good enough. Look, we, honestly, we need a radical shake-up and change of our whole system of government, because right now it is not working. And you're going to be standing uh, candidates in local elections, I understand, if they go ahead, presumably next May, right? Yeah, and I think also police and crime commissioners. I mean, I thought it was utterly shameful to see chief constables taking the knee to an organisation that wanted to defund them. Yeah. I mean, what is going on? This complete, total lack of confidence and moral courage that we see right through the upper echelons of our society. Well, we also saw the Birmingham uh, P Police and Crime Commissioner uh, saying the other day that he'd be sending out officers to uh, pook in to people's windows on Christmas Day to make sure they weren't breaking the rules. Well, good luck with that. You know, yeah, but let's, uh, yeah. let's, let's talk a little bit about Trump because uh, he is quite a remarkable individual. Uh, the amazing piece of video of you uh, being uh, invited onto the stage 
uh, where he described you as quite a shy individual, which I thought was rather amusing. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but it's been quite remarkable watching the numbers of people um, going to these rallies. Well, I mean, you know, he's not just the president of the USA. He is a human dynamo. I mean, yesterday he did five rallies and he's speaking for an hour to two hours mm. at each of them. Um, uh, my, I have to tell you, um, I'm going to Scranton today. I'm, I'm here in Pennsylvania. Scranton, of course, being the hometown of one Joe Biden. Nice. And, and funnily enough, Hillary Clinton before that. I've just been outside uh, for a little morning stroll. Um, it is blowing hard. It is freezing. There is snow in the air. The weather is evil. And you know what? Tens of thousands of people will turn up to watch him. It is remarkable. They love him. He's got energy. He is just the greatest showman you have ever seen. And one thing for certain, if you're a voter on Tuesday, tomorrow, here in America, with Trump, you know exactly what you're getting. He did it four years ago. He made promises. He kept them. He's doing the same again. Uh, and, and all I can say... You know, I've watched elections all over the world. I have never seen a support base as enthusiastic as they are for this man. Mm. I mean, these crowds chant, we love you, and mm. they mean it. Right. So look, you can, if you want to, look at the opinion polls, look at the betting markets, look at the lead editorials of the global press, and they will all tell you that it's a slam dunk for Joe Biden. I do not believe it. I think the guy's got the big, the big mo, big momentum going with him, and I genuinely think he's going to win tomorrow. And in Pennsylvania, of course, uh, Joe Biden, uh, which, as you say, is, is more or less his home state, uh, has said that he wants to do away with the oil business uh, and fracking, yes. which is not going to play too well for one of the world's centres of oil and fracking. Well, that's right. I mean, it, this this is this is classic, isn't it? I mean, these are blue collar jobs. These are communities who traditionally voted Democrat. Uh, but under Joe Biden, they will lose their jobs. And I think you're right. I think that is an absolute key to Pennsylvania. But also, you know, when Biden talks about the long, dark winter and Trump says there's going to be a super boom under him next year, it's really come down to hope versus fear. With Donald, you get hope. And some may say uh, that it's ridiculously over-optimistic, but that's the message he's pushing. And with Biden, you get fear and constant talk of death. And And, and I think... You know, one thing I've learned in the last few years is that people want a good, strong leader and a positive message. It's, it, I have to say, it's been the most exciting uh, last week here. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to tomorrow enormously. But one slightly dark uh, comment on this. I was in D.C. yesterday and literally it's being boarded up, Mike. Mm. It's being boarded up because if Trump wins again, they know there are going to be riots and something has gone terribly wrong in democracy in America and indeed in the UK, where the left now just don't accept genuine democratic results. Mm. And that is an awful, awful thing. Uh, and let's hope it doesn't happen. Nigel, listen, great to talk to you. We're going to be talking to you again uh, on the overnight show tomorrow night, wherever you're going to be, I don't know. But uh, hopefully uh, we'll be getting the, the results as they come in. Uh, it's going to be a fascinating uh, election. It's going to be an amazing day and an amazing night for you. Uh, Nigel, thank you very much indeed. We'll speak to you tomorrow. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, according to the rules that we currently will be uh, faced with come Thursday, public services 
will remain open. Job centres will continue to help people find work. Good luck with that. Courts and registry offices will continue to operate. Food banks, blood donation services will continue to operate as well. And Alcoholics Anonymous and various other bereavement services and various other uh, consultation groups uh, for mental health will continue to remain open as long as they don't have more than 15 people per session. It's a very complicated sort of series of things going on. Schools for the moment also remain open. uh, But there are also uh, rumours that many teaching unions are going to try and shut schools down. I had a message over the weekend uh, from a listener uh, whose son's school has been shut this week. Uh, it's instead of going back after half term, uh, it's been shut for a couple of weeks because of some COVID cases. It's in the southeast of England. I'm not going to name it. Um, but he has had uh, a conversation with both the headmaster and his MP about it all. Let's talk to Calvin Robinson now himself, a former educator, now uh, studying uh, for all sorts of uh, further qualifications. Calvin, a very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Mike, good to hear from you. How are you doing? Yeah, very well indeed. You know, what? I was fascinated yesterday when it was pointed out to me, um, and I can't remember who pointed it out to me, but the, the, the teachers' union, uh, which is currently calling for schools to be locked down, is claiming that thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people have signed a petition uh, to, to do so, right? But interestingly, um, many of the people who have signed a petition are not actually teachers because they've opened a petition up to concerned individuals, as well as, you know, all manner of activists and, and, uh, and sort of union workers. Quite crafty, isn't it? It is rather um, crafty, yeah. A union survey that's not actually surveying their members. No, no. I mean, basically what they're doing uh, is, is going around to their mates' houses and saying, will you sign this? <laughs> that's pretty much what they're doing, to get the message across that they want to portray. Mm. And again, every time we talk about this, we always see the unions are doing the same thing. It's anti-government for the sake of being anti-government. They're too political. Yeah. They're not looking after their members. And also, as it's also been pointed out to me, there are hundreds of thousands of teachers um, in, in this country, many of whom, most of whom are not in this particular union. Right. So the majority of teachers aren't in favour of this. At least the majority of teachers haven't signed uh, this survey in favour of further lockdowns. And most people I'm talking to are saying, look, we need to keep kids in schools. And that's because we've seen the effect of the first lockdown. We can't have that again. Young people are, I mean, they were out of school for a third of a school year, but actually the results have shown that they're 22 months behind now. Yeah. So it's been so detrimental to their, to their learning. We can't, we can't put them through it. Well, of course. And I mean, I mean I, I've got two teenage children, as, you, as I've probably told you before. You know, they literally did nothing for about six months because one of them was due to take GCSEs, which never happened. So there was no work that he could be given before going off to FE college to do his A-levels, which is where, he's, where he is now. And the younger one um, just was given homework if, if he wanted to do it. I mean, that was the kind of the rule of thumb. So, of course, he did some of it, but he didn't do much of it. Yeah. And at the time when we talked last, it was all anecdotal. So I was just yeah. speaking to other teachers. But we've got actual research behind this now that shows at least one in five children had no contact, no schoolwork, no support or anything at all. Mm. Uh, that's too much to leave children behind, isn't it? Yeah. And what we're also seeing is the disadvantaged children that are getting left behind. That gap is widening now. You know, private schools are putting a lot better resources than the state schools in the disadvantaged areas. And that's not OK. Mm. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I do think and hope that if there was to be a, a shutdown of, of some schools, and as I say, there are some schools that have shut because of COVID one way or another, rightly or wrongly, that they are better. They're going to be better at it this time because they're going to be more prepared. I mean, Google Classroom, for example, is something that my son's school has now signed up to. Um, so I think they might be better at setting homework and making it more like a virtual classroom situation. 
Exactly that. So a lot of the consultancy I did over the summer was setting up Google Classroom in schools. So they had a way of delivering content, yeah. which is why I don't get the union's argument that we need to shut schools down to prepare them for to prepare for what? We've had the whole summer holiday to yeah. prepare for this. We know what we're doing now. Right. And we should do. Exactly. And I mean, it certainly doesn't seem to be wrong that, that basically certainly anyone under 15 uh, is not really in any danger from this particular virus. Yes, they can get it. Yes, they can pass it on. Uh, and I suppose there will be those who would say, well, we need to lock the schools down because otherwise it's not a proper lockdown. Well, this is the thing as well. We've got the chief medical officer. We've got the chief scientific officer. We've got the government. We've got the opposition all saying that schools should remain open. Why is Mary Bowsted, why is the National Education Union saying otherwise? What do they know that everyone else doesn't? We've got the top medical experts in the country, if not the world, saying that the risk uh, is manageable and that mm. schools should stay open. I mean, curiously, it's the one area where the government is actually taking account of the mental health of the children and the people who will be mostly affected by a lockdown, whereas they're not taking account of the mental health of small business owners. They're not taking account uh, of the well-being and the mental health of the elderly who are not allowed to see anyone. They're locked away. They can't see their families. You know, there doesn't. it's a strange disconnect for me. It is. And, you know, I'm not the government's biggest supporter at the moment, but they have made resources available for schools. They've opened up an extra billion pounds on top of what they've already put together um, so that we can have catch up provisions. They are providing resources for children in disadvantaged areas, etc. So the support is there. The guidance is there. Schools have the autonomy to get on with things and change practices and put new hygiene measures in place. I don't see any reason not to open them other than to make a political point. Mm, absolutely right. And parents, of course, will know that the last thing they need is more children of their own running about the house um, while they're trying to go out to work. Because a lot of people would have to then take time off work, which they may not be able to do. And again, with it, at the risk of repeating myself, it's the less well off who suffer most here, isn't it? It's the less well-off who are stuck in small apartments, small flats, um, small houses, maybe with quite a lot of children around. The last thing they need is is, is another four-week lockdown. Well, this is a point I made to, to Mary uh, yesterday in that she's one of the highest paid public sector union bosses in the country. So it's OK for her to take time off. It's OK for her not to go into work and do things. But it's not the same situation for millions of people all around the country. We're not all that privileged, unfortunately. No, sadly, that's that's true. And I mean, as far as your belief uh, of, of how this will go, we're hearing a lot of sounds at the moment that that, you know, as with, with all things the government does, it changes and it may change between now and the end of this week or it may change between now and the end of the month. Um, what do you think would push them towards closing schools? I think if the pressure continues from what they perceive to be teachers um, to close schools, then they'll buckle. But what we've got to tell the government is this this union doesn't speak for teachers anymore. They are a political force. And we have to stand up as teachers and say, actually, we want to keep educating children. We don't want to interrupt their lives and their futures any longer. We need them to be in the classroom. That's the best place for right. them, for their mental health, for their education and for their well-being. And I mean, we're already being told that there might well be delays to the exams uh, next year, that they may not be able to take their A-levels and their GCSEs at the time when they were supposed to anyway which would be a massive balls up. Yeah. Look at what happened this year. It was the biggest mistake we've seen in education in at least a decade. We can't do that all over again. We have to put measures in place to make sure exams are socially distanced, as they always are, and get kids in there to, uh, to prove that all the studying they've done so far and to put, put it all into practice and give them an opportunity to, to succeed. We can't take that away from them again. 
we can't delay it and we can't cancel it. No. And what are you making of what's going on in the universities of this country? Because they've been accused of kind of basically money grabbing by demanding the students come and stay in the halls of residence when it probably wasn't the wisest decision they should have made. It's a lot of students now getting the blame uh, from politicians for partying too hard and for uh, disobe- disobe- you know, disobeying the rules and all sorts of things like that. I mean, would it make more sense maybe to lock them down? Well, I think they're a bit of a scapegoat. I think the government isn't taking any blame for the situation from lockdown or post-lockdown, and they're pushing it all onto young people. It's easy to say, oh, yeah, those young people are doing what young people do, uh, and people are getting on board with this, which is what surprises me. Mm. What we should be saying is, actually, this is the government's response. You know, the mental health crisis in this country is down to the government's lockdown schemes, and the spread of the virus is due to these measures not working. Let's not blame young people, uh, whether at university or otherwise, and let's blame the government, as we rightly should. Yes, but of course, many of the figures that the government are looking at, and Andrew Bridgen mentioned this earlier when I spoke to him, uh, is the right the steep a lot of the steep rise in infection rates is between the ages of sort of eighteen and twenty four. So you know while those people may not be terribly adversely affected by the infections, they're the cause of a lot of the spikes. So we need to put different measures in place to manage that. And I'm not sure locking people away in the universities is, is the case. As you know, I'm, I'm studying at the moment. I'm in my university, uh, in my college room at the moment. This mm. is not a place I want to be stuck for <laughs> a long period of time. I will go insane. Yes, I think that's very true. But there will be people now from Thursday on uh, who will be probably stuck in rooms even smaller than that. Absolutely. And it can't be OK. Uh, we've seen London Ambulance Service said that we've seen a 70 percent rise in attempted suicides mm. since the lockdown. We've got to consider the mental health implications. And I don't think the prime minister is doing that. I haven't heard him mention the word mental health more than once over the last few months. No. It's not OK to put such draconian measures in place and not uh, consider the consequences of those actions. Well, this is the thing. I mean, there's no question that he's talked about it in the past and he's talked about how nobody wants to do this uh, and he's always reluctantly doing things and he wishes he didn't have to do them. But I think he could be a little bit more robust with some of the scientists to say, well, you know, it's all very well saving these lives over here, um, but over there, there's something else going on. That's it, though, isn't it, Mike? It's an exchange of lives for lives. Uh, We've all seen that video of of that 104-year-old woman just begging to see her family yes. knocked away in that care home and it's just not right how can we say we are going to protect your life at any cost you know you will live forever yeah but you won't see you won't have a life but you will live forever that's not what a lot of people want you know give people agency over their own lives give them freedom let us uh, make responsible choices ourselves don't lock us down and, and tell us what to do with our lives what's the point no quite and as far as your situation is concerned calvin what will it, what will affect you on on thursday what will happen Well, it looks like I'm spending half term here in my college room, and I hope I won't be locked in here for the entirety of the month. I I hope there's some way to escape. With restaurants and things being closed as well, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, So I'm sure my mental health will be implicated in this. I'm already going insane at the thought of it. Yeah, I know. I can imagine. Well, listen, hang in there. Uh, You can always call the show if you need somebody to talk to. (laughs) Um, But listen, we'll talk to you very soon. Calvin, thanks very much indeed. Calvin Robinson there, uh, who is education consultant, former assistant principal himself, an educationalist who knows the absolute value uh, of keeping children in schools, who knows that the school should remain open despite what uh, one teaching union thinks. And what's interesting about it, right, uh, is that actually an awful lot of the people signing their petition to close schools down, uh, which the last time I looked was around about between 80 and 100,000 signatures. Basically, um, they're not actually, many of them, not teachers at all. Some of them are parents. Some of them are interested adults. 
So I don't know what that means. Some of them are activists, obviously, who are just trying to make a political point. Uh, but if you've got a school uh, that you want to uh, give me some information about, because I've, as I said, I've already had a couple of tweets from people who said that their schools where their kids go have been shut down because of COVID. A dozen or so teachers supposedly being infected, some children being infected as well. Um, but it's very important, it seems to me, to keep the schools open at all costs, isn't it? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, uh, it's time to speak to our favourite science expert, and that is Tom Whipple, science editor of The Times, also author of Get Ahead in Chemistry and Get Ahead in Physics, which if you've got children doing GCSEs, uh, you may already be familiar with. Tom, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Hello. Now, as ever, I've been uh, swatting up on your uh, your book and your chapter about uh, bonding, uh, because I've obviously been aware of the phrase bonding before, but I never really talked about it uh, in the sense of chemical bonding. Uh, so let's talk about chemical bonding. What is it and why is it important? So chemical bonding is sort of what chemistry is. It's, it's sort of what the world is. Mm. If you imagine if, if we just had atoms knocking around, all we'd have is a soup of atoms. It's only when atoms join together to make things that are solid or to make things that are like, like water that we actually have... The, the stuff around us mm. that, that makes life possible and that, that make, makes a world at all. So it's, is it important? It's you know, arguably the most important thing that, that, we, that we have in chemistry. And bonding is about how atoms join together. It's about hydrogen comes together with oxygen to make water. It's about how sodium comes together with chloride to make sodium chloride. It, 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 it is what stuff is. Mm. It's fascinating. I was actually um, not thinking about you in particular, but thinking about atoms. Um, the other day, I was walking in the woods with my dog and I was very, uh, there was nobody around. There was, I was the only person there and it was a very sort of tightly knit set of woods. And I was basically kind of just looking at everything, thinking, what would it be like uh, to see the atoms here or something? You know, because I, I, I struggle with the whole concept of atoms, really. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's completely understandable. Humans are not made to uh, think about things at that scale. It's, it's just inconceivable yeah. how small atom is. Um, and yes, if you looked around at those trees, you'd see lots and lots of carbon atoms joined together. The astonishing thing about a tree is almost all of its mass comes out of the air mm. it, it doesn't come out of the soil it's just drawn drawn carbon out of the air to make tree and that that's that's what it is it, it's it's breathing that makes it and those carbon atoms are then joined together with other things um using something called a covalent bond which is they sort of share the electrons on the outside of the atom so they can join together and make make long chains of things that uh that that we call tree Yes. And I was, again, th thinking about it when I was on a beach because, you know, you get different levels of sand. You get little pebbles. Sometimes you get bigger pebbles, stones. Some parts of the beach have been driven by the sea into very, very soft sand. You know, I, it's, it's kind of mind boggling, really. It is. And so think about the sea. So the sea is full of salt right. um, and we get salt out of it. And it makes these things called crystals, um, which you see in lots of different places. Mm. Um, and the amazing thing about that is knowing how a single sodium atom bonds to a chloride atom, um, you can imagine the shape of a crystal and these things can get huge. Just those rules. It's like knowing how a brick gets together with another brick will tell you what the Great Pyramid of Giza looks like. And what they're doing is you've got these sodium, when they go into the water, the sodium and the chloride, they, they come apart and they make these things called ions where one of them is given another one an electron 
and it means that one of them is positively charged, one of them is negatively charged, and they come together as that water evaporates. They come together in this perfect lattice work that makes the crystals of salts that w- that we know, and that's right. the form of bond called ionic bonding. Okay, and when does it stop? Because presumably it's an infinite bonding process. So at some point or other, the crystal stops growing. And why does that happen? So the the growth of crystals depends on the the it depends a bit bit on the atoms that you're using. It also depends on the temperature. It depends on how slowly they can form. And if you know they they form very fast, the crystals be small. If they form very slowly, then they can be very very big. And you see this as there's a cave in Mexico where there's these crystals that are meters and meters high. Some cavers happened upon it and then just sort of switched on their torches and realized they were in some Aladdin's cave of, of, of jewels, mm. a wonder of the world. Um, and so, yeah, it depends if they can have time to form these these astonishing structures that, that, that we see. And as far as the kind of periodic table is concerned, can you look at that and see that certain things bond better with other things? Yeah, you, you absolutely can. So so bonding, what, what happens is in the in an atom, you've got electrons that go around it and you can think of them. This is this will annoy chemists, but you can sort of think of them as orbiting the centre. Yeah. Um, and in the first orbit, the bit closest to it, you can fit in two electrons. In the next ones, you can fit in eight and eight. And what they like is to have full shells. So bonding is basically a way that they can find full shells. So if one of them's got seven in the last orbit, it would really like to get together with one that's got one in the last orbit, maybe. And they'll sort of loan each other their electrons so they're, they're, they're both full. Or they can do similar things by sharing electrons so that they end up getting full shells. So maybe they'll both share two electrons in their outer shell so that both of them appear to have a full shell as far as the electrons concerned. And so in that way, you can see that sodium will join with chloride or that Hydrogen, if you get two of the hydrogens and one of the oxygens and they come together, then then you'll be able to complete the shells of both of them and you'll get H2O and that, that's that's water. So, yeah, it gives you gives you a lot of well, it, it tells you precisely how these two things are going to join together. OK. And metallic bonding is another kind of bonding. Tell us about that. This is completely different. So this is this is how metals do their thing. Right. Um, and they, if you imagine a, a lot of metals, they might have just one electron in their last outer shell. And they'll lose it. It'll become delocalized. And all of these atoms will join together in this soup of kind of floating shared electrons. And that is why, that, well, that, that tells you two things. That's, that's why electrons are so good at conducting electricity, because electricity is moving electrons. And they've all got these, these floating electrons that can move around for the same reason they can conduct heat really well. It also tells you why they're really, really soft, um, why, the, why you can bend them out into wires and why they'll why you can battle, batten them down into shapes and they can change into different things is because all of these these atoms can just slide over each other. And you're, you're probably thinking, but metal isn't really soft. Well, metal alloys aren't really soft. So things like steel that's got a little bit of carbon in there that stops the, elect- the atoms sliding aren't really soft. Um, but if you have a pure metal, if you have something, you know, like tin or something, then, then yeah, you can, you can make it into lots of different shapes um, precisely because of this kind of bonding. So looking at the periodic table doesn't just tell you what bonds with what, it also tells you what the end product's likely to look like, whether it's going to be a crystalline mm. thing, whether it's going to be a sort of slidey thing, or whether it's going to be something in between. 
Amazing. And is there anything in this particular kind of area that has yet, this is a $55,000 question or the $64,000 question, um, that could be sort of discovered anew? Because presumably the periodic table is, 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 is not infinite. You can't just keep discovering different um, chemical combinations, can you? Well, we can. So um, it depends what you mean by infinite. So, so the, the number of atoms that naturally exist we found all of those. Those are up to the ones that are made in, in supernovas when stars explode. Mm. I mean, most of you are made of stardust. You're made of previously exploding stars because that's what it takes to make the kind of uh, strong and heavy atoms that make up Mike Graham. But if you have really powerful particle accelerators, we have started making uh, even heavier atoms that normally disappear as soon as you make them. So the periodic table can keep on going, and we are still discovering new atoms. I think we discovered six in the in the past decade or so, and new kinds of elements that will join in new kinds of ways. And the hope is that actually we might find a period of stability that it might be possible to make ones artificially that become stable and then have all kinds of uh, properties that we don't understand. But at the moment, the heavier atoms are, the more likely they are to be radioactive. And in fact, if you had a wall of your house where you had a kilogram of each of the periodic table elements, you'd be fine with hydrogen, you'd be fine with a kilogram of iron. As you got up uh, to larger and larger ones, you'd probably end up with stuff that would destroy the world if you were able to do that much <laughs> in your house. Wow. Well, listen, it's a fascinating area and, and one that I think I know a little bit more about now, thanks to you, Tom. Thank you very much indeed. Tom Whipple, science editor at The Times, uh, telling us all about chemical bonding, metallic bonding, ionic bonding, crystals. It's a fascinating world. I sort of wish I knew a bit more about it. I wasn't very good at chemistry when I was a kid. Author of Get Ahead in Chemistry, Get Ahead in Physics. Uh, if your kids are doing GCSEs this year, you might want to get a hold of those books because they are incredibly easy to understand and very well put together. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.